choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 170 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, The Voyage Home. Last time we left Apollo 8, just after a successful trans-Earth injection burn, the crew of Apollo 8 were on their way home. The voyage home began with a spectacular view of the entire moon as Apollo 8 climbed away from it. Then there was nothing to do but tend to the systems, listen to news reports from mission control, and messages of congratulations that were pouring in from around the world. Oh, and also, catch up on sleep. The crew performed their final TV broadcast, and when that was over, they discovered a surprise waiting for them in Apollo 8's food locker. Wrapped in foil and tied with red and green ribbons, real turkey with stuffing and cranberry sauce. This was a so-called wet pack meal developed by the military, one of the innovations Borman had fought to keep off the flight. It was also by far the best meal of the trip. And there was another surprise, courtesy of Deke Slayton. Three tiny bottles of brandy. Borman was annoyed at this, and he told his crew to put that back. He wasn't about to risk someone in the public raising a ruckus if they made a single mistake on the rest of the flight. The brandy would get the blame. The bottles were unopened, and Lovell would say later that neither he nor Anders had any intention of opening them. There were also other packages, and these were meant to be opened. Christmas gifts to the men from their wives. Susan Borman had sent cufflinks made from a pair of St. Christopher's medals that had gone through World War I with the late husband of a dear friend. From Marilyn Lovell, there were cufflinks and a man-in-the-moon tie-tack. From Valerie Anders, a gold number eight tie-tack, replete with moonstone. For Bill Anders, the trip home was a long, quiet, and boring fall. At one point, Mike Collins mentioned that his son, Michael, had asked who was driving up there, and Anders replied, I think Isaac Newton is doing most of the driving right now. This should have been a welcome chance to catch up on all the sleep he'd missed on the way out, but Anders, at least, wasn't having much luck there. Somehow it worked out that when he was trying to sleep, Borman and Lovell were awake, and they got into small talk. Because of Borman's bad ear, they had to yell a lot. 
Anders was only thankful that in zero-G he could survive on so little sleep because he wasn't getting much. Now, flying the reentry was a task reserved for the command module computer if it worked. Borman would just sit there and monitor it. If it broke down, he would have to take over and fly it, and he had worked hard to help create the techniques to do that. They'd probably be off target for splashdown because nobody could fly it as well as the computer. The tough part was going to be flying through the periods of high G's. It was hard enough in the training runs in the centrifuge when you could barely lift your arms, but after six days of weightlessness, it would be even tougher. Flying the re-entry was one piloting job Borman would just as soon not have. Even a perfect re-entry would subject the command module to extreme stress. In Gemini, the ride down from Earth orbit was long and slow, but Apollo 8 would be coming in at 25,000 miles per hour, and the forces of heat and deceleration would be far greater. Temperatures around the command module would soar to 5,000 degrees Celsius, and the astronauts' lives would depend on the heat shield. It was made from a substance called phenolic epoxy resin, whose protection came not from resisting the intense heat, but from giving into it. The heat shield would become white hot, then char and melt away, taking with it the heat of reentry. And when the fiery plunge through the atmosphere was finished, there would still be one more critical event, the opening of three 80-foot parachutes to lower Apollo 8 to the waters of the Pacific. On Friday, December 27th, T plus six days, two hours, it was time to release the service module. Here's a clip from Paul Haney. Recovery is advising the flight director of their good status. They see good weather out there. They're on station. The, um, the route of flight, in case you're not looking at a map, will be over uh, northeast China, Peking, and then over Tokyo. And we start a southeastern slant. The ship Redstone is parked at... Uh, 24 degrees north, 169 degrees east. And the next uh, listening point will be the ship Huntsville, tracking a ship at 172 west, 12 degrees north. And the landing point just a few hundred miles southeast of there at uh, 165 west, approximately 8 north. A few of the events, uh, as we plan to clock them here, that point a 400,000 foot point, which is uh, that point when many of our events begin to happen. We call it the area of reaching some little small amount of atmosphere, is to occur at 146 hours, 46 minutes. Uh, the blackout period should begin about 25, 20, 25 seconds later. Apollo 8. The maximum heating point would be 146 hours, 47 minutes, and which should occur at uh, roughly 200,000 feet. And at this point, the 
roller coaster type ride that the spacecraft will take will bend slightly upward for approximately 40,000 to 50,000 feet, then level off and begin its last plunge back. But as it hits the first breaking point at uh, 180,000 feet, the max g-force will be felt by the crew of 6.8 g's. A second g uh, spike of 4.2 will be noted uh, about four or five minutes later. The total blackout we're predicting this morning is on the order of three minutes. But since we have very little experience re-entering at these velocities, we uh, must caution you that those are only estimates. The flight director has confirmed separation separation of the command module and the service module. We've been looking at data on the command module alone and all the values look quite good. With just six minutes to go until re-entry, the brief appearance of the moon rising beyond the dark curve of Earth's night side at exactly the moment the trajectory specialist had predicted was welcome reassurance that Apollo 8 was aimed right for the middle of the corridor. I have a clip here of the conversation going on inside the command module at this time. Well, man, we're getting close. There's no turning back now. Oh, Mother Earth has us. I think we may end up losing our horizon here uh, when that moon goes down. That's probably what makes your horizon so good as the moon's back now. Before it grows. I wonder if dim light dunkel would like me to do a little air glow photography right now. How's the high the voltage? Voltage is great. 28 volts. I got the old... Bill never saw that. What is it? Or did you notice? That's the haze level. Air glow? Air glow. Good old air glow is what's... Look at the air glow next to that's right, you've never seen the air glow. Take a look at it. Can't get your pin without seeing the air glow. That's right. I see it, I see it. <laughs> see, this one is supposed to ask how many G's yet, Mo. That's right. <laughs> how we doing? We're doing good over here. Okay, in the middle. Now that horizon's getting harder to find. You're within 30 degrees of of the attitude. How do you know? Well, five two is it? You're coming up on it now. It's getting a little hazy out here. Does that mean anything? Every time you fire a thruster. You start to get some reflection off the earth, I guess. The command module was beginning to touch the outermost fringes of the atmosphere so fast that atoms were being stripped of their electrons, creating a glowing plasma. Orman and Lovell had seen a similar glow on their Gemini re-entries, but never that bright. And it was only the beginning. This is going to be a real ride. Hang on, Orman said. But they were still weightless in their couches. Soon, however, they knew the command module would begin to decelerate. A light on the instrument panel would come on when the G-force measured 0.05 
At that moment, the real re-entry would begin. From then on, things would happen fast and furious. Here is the capsule recording. Okay, 05G uh, is at 4641. You call 05G, Jim. I'll call off it. I'll tell you when the G starts. I got to start this thing automatically manually right. if you don't give it to me, Jim. Okay. So make sure you call it. That 05G time, right? Yeah. God, it is hazy out there, isn't it? That's a different lighting effect, I guess. That's sunrise. Huh? Yeah. Oh, here we go. 146, 46, 20. We shoot our 05G time. That's the air glow we're starting to get to. Yeah. Is, gentlemen. Is it the what? Well, okay, we got the building. It's going to be real right. Hang on. I've we're never seen a desk break. Sure. Yeah. Okay, we're building up 100. Got 05G yet? 100 is 02. The com Stand by, 38, 39, 40. 05G. 05G. Okay, we got the it. EMS Hang on. We have lost signal. 105G, switch on. The, uh, 05G, rolling EMS. Right. Lost signal at okay, 146, gang. 46 minutes. Right they're building up. Uh, very nearly 46 seconds. Call out the G's. And our estimate is that this uh, black We're watching. We'll continue. Let's see. Three minutes. Oh. Okay. Five. Leading edge of the heat shield. Base circular at 4823. Flight director notes that he hears the still holding the real grass code keying. The uh, eye is still out. Okay, we're 67. 146 hours, 48 minutes. A cold white light flooded the windows as bright as daylight. It was like flying inside a neon tube. Borman had never seen anything so weird. Outside, Anders could see flaming objects, tiny pieces of the burning heat shield flying past his window. He kept waiting to feel the heat build up at his back, but it never came. While the heat shield charred and melted inside the cabin, the temperature hardly rose a degree. Far below to those who were fortunate enough to see it, the command module was a glowing meteor in the night sky. The computer, meanwhile, was doing a miraculous job. 
Under its control, the command module turned and soared along a precisely crafted roller coaster ride. Apollo 8 dipped down to the denser air, then ascended briefly for a respite from the heat and the G-loads, then dipped and climbed once more. At last, it headed down for the final descent, following through the pre-dawn darkness. Here's the clip from the capsule. Well, sure, you I've never seen anything like it. Cabin temperature's on real good, up one degree. Primary evaporator's crapped out. Secondary's still working. Coming off of two Gs. You can see our gig and Second pulse coming out. And the Huntsville, Huntsville says they have acquired an S-band signal at uh, 51 minutes, four seconds. How much of this one go up, do you think? Three. And uh, they immediately called back and said no contact. They negate that first uh, announcement. One of the uh, recovery helicopters reported seeing something, but those kind of reports at these critical okay, moments are unusual. Okay, we should have a call. Houston, Apollo 8, over. Houston, Apollo 8, over. And there's Jim Lovell. Roger, this is a real fireball. It's looking good. Come on, he says we're looking good. I can't tell whether it's Bowman or Lovell. Let's try to cut it in. Don't let me forget those boost entry. Roger, I got you. It's almost all over with the shot now, man. We're in real good shape, Houston. Real fine. Now, Apollo 8 was back in radio contact with Houston. At about 100,000 feet, the altimeter sprang to life. The command module plunged toward the Pacific at a thousand feet per second. All that was left was the parachutes. The command module cleared 30,000 feet and there was a loud crack as the parachute cover flew off. Then another crack. There go the drogues, Borman said, announcing the release of three small stabilizing parachutes. Now there was a loud whoosh of air as a vent opened to let cabin pressure equalize with the outside. Should be approaching 10K, Anders called. Stand by for the mains in one second. Here's the clip from the capsule. We've got, we got a minute to uh, drogues. Okay, you're in boost entry? Yep. Okay, anything on the altimeter yet? Not yet. Okay, we've got 15 seconds from where, for 90K. Okay. There she comes. 30 seconds from 90K. The uh, Yorktown is reporting and confirming a radar contact. The bearing is Stand by, Houston. Stand by. Can you give me a disc reading? Report drogues. Stand by. Can you give a disc reading? Report drogues. Roger. Disc is reading. Plus four balls, seven. Plus two balls, eight, one, two. Minus one, six, five, zero, two. That's Jim. 40K. Coming up on 40K. It should be at 40K now. 40K. Okay, call 30K. I will. 
30K. ELS Logic on. ELS Auto. Auto. Stand by for RCS disable. Stand by on the Apex cover. Right. There's the Apex cover. There go the charge. Okay. 20,000. Damn close, he's coming up. 19,000. Damn about the 10 gauge. Should be approaching 10 gauge soon. 15. I wonder what that was. Nothing. Should be approaching 10K. Stand by with the mains in one second. Stand by for RCS Okay. You got him? Yeah. Look back three. Sucker back is closed. VHF recovery. VHF AM simplex. Beacon's going on. Get your light on. It's on. You got your... You got it, Jim. Huh? You got the call. Give him a call. Okay. Houston, Apollo 8, over. At first, Borman couldn't see the main chutes but the altimeter had slowed its readings, so the chutes had to be okay. Now, a loud mechanical groan filled the cabin as excess fuel was dumped overboard and the command module thrusters spat flame. In their pale light, Borman and Anders glimpsed three great canopies of red and white, beautiful, perfect parachutes. Now, their headsets filled with the chatter of the recovery helicopter. Here's the clip. Okay, standing by for the dump. Apollo 8, Air Blast 1, go ahead. Roger, Air Blast 1, we indicate 8,000. We can't see the shoes, but we're going down very slow. Uh, Roger, this is Air Blast 1. You're sounding very good, very good. You have been reported on radar uh, southwest of the ship, about uh, 25 miles. Go ahead. Uh, Roger, we're now indicating 7,000. That's the our beacon. Uh, Air Boss, do you see our flashing beacon? Uh, this is Air Boss 1, Matt Negative. Welcome home, gentlemen, and we'll have you aboard in no time, go ahead. Stand by for the dump, Frank. All right. This is recovery 3. I have a flashing light at my 4 o'clock position uh, at this level. Recovery 2, Sarah contact 2, 6, 0. Get pressure relief valve. My position. Directo 2 over. Zero, As Borman, Lovell, and Anders went through the checklist for splashdown, their communications were almost drowned out by the radio traffic. Moments later, the command module hit the water with a tremendous jolt. Water poured in through an open vent, so much that for an instant, Anders thought that the spacecraft's hull had cracked with the impact. The water poured all over Borman, who was poised to release the chutes, and before he could do anything, 
the wind dragged the command module upside down. Now it was up to three balloons in the spacecraft's nose to inflate and set them upright. Meanwhile, Borman, Lovell, and Anders hung in their straps upside down in a dark, warm, suddenly quiet spacecraft, tossed around by a rough sea. Ten-foot swells set them pitching and rolling while the helicopters circled overhead, waiting for the first light of dawn before dispatching swimmers. Frank Borman had never had a strong stomach for sea voyages, and it wasn't long before he was sick again. This time, Lovell and Anders showed him no mercy, saying, What do you expect from a West Point ground pounder? At last they were upright again, and the swimmers had arrived to secure a flotation collar around the command module. From one of the circling helicopters came a voice. Apollo 8, is the moon made of Lineberger cheese? No, radioed Anders. It's made of American cheese. The words of the returned moon voyagers belied the condition inside the Apollo 8. Borman, Lovell, and Anders were positively grungy. For one thing, they needed a shave. Borman less so than his crew, but he'd taken so much grief about his scrawny beard after two weeks on Gemini 7 that this time he had arranged for an electric razor to be waiting for him in the recovery helicopter. After six days of living in a flying toilet, they didn't even notice how bad it smelled inside Apollo 8. But when that first swimmer opened the hatch, he reeled backwards as if he had been kicked in the head. Inside, the three men noticed a strange smell, too. Fresh sea air. Life rafts waited outside the hatch, and minutes later, the chopper lowered a net and lofted each man, one at a time. As Borman ascended, he glanced down at Spacecraft 103, his ship, bobbing in the Pacific, and he felt gratitude. And a few minutes later, he stood smiling with crew on the deck of the USS Yorktown, while hundreds of sailors cheered and waved American flags in the morning light. After the crew arrived safely on the Yorktown, Borman was asked to say a few words. On behalf of the entire Yorktown crew, a most hearty welcome aboard, and congratulations on a tremendously successful flight. Colonel Borman, would you care to say a few words to the crew? Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, we're just very happy to be here, and we appreciate all your efforts. And I know you had to stay out here over Christmas, and that made it tough. I'm, uh, Jim and I always seem to fly in December. We made it home before Christmas in 65. But we, we can't tell you much how, as, how much we really appreciate you being here and how proud it is for us to participate in this event, because thousands of people made this possible, and I guess we're all just part of the group. Thank you very much. And now, Paul Haney, back in Houston, describes the celebration in Mission Control. Again, it's Apollo Control here. I'm not sure how well our voice is getting out. Uh, there is a tremendous roar, an undercurrent of roar in the background. And I have never seen uh, the degree of this emotional outpouring in any previous mission, including Alan Shepard's. 
I've seen uh, rallies in locker rooms after championship games. I've seen happy politicians after elections, but I, and none of them do justice to the spirit pervading this room. Now here's a clip made by the astronauts in 2013 recalling the re-entry and splashdown. Anyway, uh, my recollection is we're coming back 35,000 feet a second, uh, way over any world speed record that had been set before, uh, seven miles a second, basically. And um, I, I remarked to, uh, to Frank or Jim and said, gee, it looks like, uh, you know, we're, are we getting sunrise? Or no, we're, are we getting entry? And they said, oh, no, this is sunrise. And I said, well, if this sunrise, we're going right into the sun. And this, it just got brighter and brighter and brighter. And pretty soon I felt like a, like a bug that was somehow gotten inside a blowtorch flame watching this torch go. And uh, as the G's build up, every now and then it looked like a big chunk would come flying off the uh, heat shield. Well, when you see the uh, meteors uh, coming in, you know, they light up very bright, but really they're just tiny little pebbles and they ionize and make a big flash. I didn't think about that at the time. And I could just feel the heat coming through uh, the spacecraft. Uh, and then we got down lower. Uh, we came in at night, first night re-entry. Then uh, it got dark, and at what, at 50,000 feet or so, the, uh, the droves fired, uh, and we, we could feel a jerk. That was very reassuring. And then at, what, 18,000 or something, the uh, main chutes came out, 12,000, and, uh, but we couldn't see them. And, and I think we needed two to make it, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it all seemed like one jerk. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, three chutes and one pull, that's not too good. But uh, our Jim and Frank checked our vertical velocity seemed to be in orbit. But when we hit, it was the biggest belly buster I've ever been on. And uh, one of Frank's jobs was to flick a switch that would blow off uh, the parachutes. But, you know, we hit so hard it just ripped his hand from the switch. And by the time he could recover, the chutes had pulled down wind and this thing was floating upside down. So I thought, here we were conquering heroes from the moon, hanging from our straps, and all the trash that was in the spacecraft that had collected on the floor when we were coming in now was raining down on our face. So it was, uh, that's one of my big recollections. Well, we came in uh, uh, because we, actually why we hit so hard, the, the spacecraft was hanging from the parachutes at an angle. And the idea was that the, the edge of the spacecraft would slice into the water and sort of not make it a little bit easier for the landing. Well, it so happened that we were swinging on the uh, shrouds of the, uh, of the uh, parachutes, and also the wave action was such that they both matched so that we hit both things flat. And that's what caused the, uh, uh, caused the, the, the sudden, uh, you know, hitting the water. And, of course, the, the parachutes then pulled us over to what is known as a stable two, which meant that we were hanging upside down just on our straps, which is sort of an unusual Way and so Frank had to throw another switch uh, that inflated about three balloons that slowly made us rotate up. And all this motion, of course, with Frank was another little disconcerting thing. And he couldn't wait to get out of that spacecraft to get back on that ship. <laughs> yeah, but I managed to get seasick and throw up all over you again before I got out. <laughs> and, and, and the two Naval Academy guys just couldn't resist. They were giving me all this nonsense about, you know, I'm not, I'm not a sailor, and, I, and thank God I wasn't, and I am not a sailor. But I got even with them because I sure puked all over them. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, now you can imagine Frank and I were on Gemini 7 a long, long time ago <laughs> for a two-week mission of 70% of the flight is over water. So you can imagine Frank's concern when he, getting close to two weeks, was all set to get down a little bit early so he could get near land someplace. When, when we were floating uh, in the sea, the uh, helicopter, we could see it coming up in the dark or hear it. Uh, but they didn't jump in, and actually they were shooting sharks because there were sharks around the spacecraft. And, and uh, then when at dawn, these frogmen jumped in and swam up, and there was one young man, I could still recognize him with his face mask on. He'd come up and he'd wave, and then they installed a, a, a tube around the spacecraft, and the guy would give us a thumbs up, you know, and then he'd go back and work and his buddies. And eventually they had a couple of uh, life rafts next to the hatch, and uh, there was a, he went through with his tool, or we, somebody opened the hatch, and as this young man stuck his head in, he fell back. So later, when we got out, well, we went, and later it was turned out to be a marine seal, and uh, he was all lined up in his uniform when the spacecraft was on the, recovered, and I went up to him and I said, the young man, I said, thanks very much. I said, but when you fell back, was it, the way we looked that surprised you? And he says, no, sir, it was the way you smelled. <laughs> In the last days of 1968, there was a single image to counter a year's worth of violence. It was the photograph of Earth rising beyond the cratered lifeless surface of the moon. Apollo 8 was more than a successful space mission. It was a bright moment for a nation experiencing itself doubt. As Vietnam threatened to be a war that the United States could not win politically, the violent protest and the assassinations, Apollo 8 was an American triumph. Shortly after Borman, Lovell, and Anders arrived in Houston, Borman received a telegram from someone he had never met. It said, quote, you saved 1968. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. And I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 170 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Apollo 8, The Voyage Home. Space Rocket History is a proud member of the History Podcasters and the Tech Podcasting Network. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Today we salute my Sputnik level donors. Sputnik donors give $5 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Sputnik donors. Had a few thoughts on this week's episode. I want to apologize for the quality of some of those clips, uh, particularly the ones that had Paul Haney talking in the background while the astronauts were talking in the capsule. That could not be avoided, or at least I couldn't figure a way to get him off of there. <laughs> But it, wasn't it great to hear the astronauts ramp up the pace of things as they were going through re-entry? They were kind of all nice and calm. Then all of a sudden, 
re-entry begins. No, here we go, guys. Here we go. Yeah, good things got a little hectic there. That was pretty exciting to me to hear that. That was I thought that was really good. Of course, at the time of the mission, all we had was a news broadcast, so we didn't get to hear all that stuff. Did you uh, catch the comment Borman made during re-entry that Jiminy was never like this? <laughs> well, I'm sure everybody remembers that the Apollo re-entry coming from the moon was much faster than the orbital re-entry of Jiminy. I thought Borman also gave us a nice uh, callback when he was making the speech on the carrier. He thanked the Yorktown crew for staying out at sea over Christmas. Do you remember when we kicked off this series, Chris Craft had to go personally and ask the Navy to cover the flight? <laughs> that was a pretty class act by Borman to go ahead and thank them. and It sort of runs uh, all the way back to Chris Craft going out there and talking to him. So I thought that was really neat. Okay, I have posted some pictures for this episode on my website, spacerockethistory.com. Make sure you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Christopher T. from the UK made another donation, this time in memory of his late son, George. And he is now promoted to the Mercury level. Life B. From Norway, made a donation at the Mercury level. Thank you, Life. Judith J. from Alabama, donated at the Soyuz level. Thank you, Judith. Alexander L. from Berlin, Germany, donated at the Vostok level. Thank you. William D. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you, William. And Mike F. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Thank you very much, Mike. That brings our Patreon donors to 61, and our overall donors for the year is 137, with a goal of reaching 250 by the end of 2016. To stay on pace for reaching that goal, we need 8.83 more donors by the end of July. I'm not quite sure how we get the .83 on there. I think we're going to have to go for 9. (laughs) by the end of July. So, if you are able and you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating. It doesn't have to be a lot. You can make a one-time Sputnik-level donation for $5, or you can make a minimum donation of $0.50 per month at Patreon. To make a one-time donation, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button on the top right of the page. This accepts credit cards and PayPal. Or you can sign up with Patreon by clicking on the Patreon link, also on the home page, just below the Donate button. Or you could donate by check just by sending me an email and I'll give you the address. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. Donors that donate two years in a row receive the coveted rocket emoji. And donors who donate three years in a row receive the treasured moon emoji next to their name on the donors list. To stay up to date on the podcast, including previews of the next episode, please follow me on Twitter. The handle is at SpaceRocketHist. Or you can follow me on Facebook. 
And to do that, you can search for the link or you can go to my homepage and get the links there. I would want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters, Jet City Star, 1202 Alarm, ATM Int Arch, Bird at Home, Buddy P. Murphy, David Nugent, Duke of Oil 60, Futurama King, Glenn Trudget, Hogfoot, Jacob Hahn, Kadavi 1202, M. Lunyon, Maddie Bellinger, Mike Lima, Rapid Mustang, Skibby, Stiggy, this is Alex Boyd, Warren Foxley, Benoit M76, KESA Space, and P Way 888. I really appreciate it. If I missed anyone, let me know, and I will get you next week. This is the end of the content for this episode, and I have a few off-topic thoughts. If you're not interested, please feel free to switch to the next podcast. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will delve into the reaction to Apollo 8's success in the U.S., the world, and the Soviet Union. It was a huge blow to the Soviets and we will find out what they are going to do about it. The podcast is finally listed on Google Play. I checked it this week, and it was there. You can find it under the Music category. So go to the Google Play Store under the Music category and search for Space Rocket History if you'd like to for your Android device. Okay, I do have some podcast statistics I'd like to give to you. Do you ever wonder which states in the U.S. download the most episodes? Well, good, because I'm going to give you the top 10 for June 2016. Here they are. Number 1, California. Number 2, Texas. Number 3, Florida. Number 4, Colorado. Number 5, Pennsylvania. Number 6, Illinois. Number 7, Virginia. Number 8, New York. Number 9, Massachusetts. And number 10, Michigan. Sadly, my home state did not make the top 10 this time. In personal news, I was able to see Star Trek Beyond last Friday. Let me tell you, it was much improved over the previous Star Trek movie. That was called Into Darkness. This one was written by Simon Pegg. You know, Mr. Scott. Scotty plays Scotty. On the the movie. Anyway, he wrote it. And you can tell that he has been a fan for a long time. And understands the Star Trek universe. A lot of crazy things that happened on Into Darkness did not happen on this movie. And I'm glad they didn't. Star Trek Beyond had a lot of callbacks to previous television series. Such as Star Trek Enterprise. There was a lot more character interaction in this episode. The pace was slowed down just a little, which I thought was a good thing. But there was plenty of action, fantastic special effects, and the music was great. To me, it deserves 
the coveted five-star rating <laughs> from myself. I'm sure they're keeping track of what I'm rating it. But uh, keep <laughs> but keep in mind that I am a longtime fan of the franchise, so I am a little biased on it. But the reaction in general here in the U.S. has been very favorable to the movie. It's rated PG-13, and there is some scary stuff that occurs, so you might not want to take a young child to see it. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I hope you enjoyed episode 170. I'll have episode 171 up by next Thursday. So long for now.